You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Psalm 119. We are not going to finish it tonight, but go easy. It is the longest psalm in the entire Bible, so it's fair that we spend a few weeks with it. It's also probably my favorite psalm, so I'm not in any rush to get through it. We are going to do four stanzas, as they call them tonight. So let's turn. We are on verse 113. Working our way through this psalm, whose grand subject, obviously, is the wonderful character and nature of the Word of God. Let's read the whole section, starting at verse 113. It says, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word that I may live. And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. So the psalmist here begins this portion of the psalm, with a wonderful contrast that we have in the very first verse, the two lines of the first verse, the contrast between hate and the contrast between love, a contrast we all could probably relate to in some respects. We have things that we hate, don't we, or things we know we, we want to hate, but we don't quite let ourselves hate them, or we do let ourselves hate them, and we don't admit that that's what we're doing, but we also have those things that we love. Now, the psalmist here, he says, he hates those who are double-minded. It's a very interesting word. It really means a divided man. We've talked about this previously in the Psalms, I remember. A divided man, someone who's non-committal, someone who tries to have their feet in both words. There's no firmness, no stability. He has no settled view. His mind is always wandering from one thing to the other. He might be doubting at one moment, full of faith the next, sceptical the next. Ultimately, it's someone who is incapable of being fully committed. And of course, I believe in this sense, he's talking about people who are not believers, but we actually know that we're not immune from having a double mind. It's the way we live our lives. You may have experienced this in your Christian walk at some point, or you may have met people who are like this. Most churches have people who are like this. You will see them for a couple of months, and then they go off, and they're back again a year later, and they never seem to be able to make that commitment to stand on that solid ground, and they're always drifting. And for me, it just seems like a very miserable way to live the Christian life. But that's what being double-minded does. It it diverts our attention away from the Lord. And the psalmist says that he hates those who are double-minded. He's obviously referring in the context here to those who are evil, because he'll mention them again as we go through the psalm, non-believers in his context. We know throughout this psalm, there is a group of people that are obviously persecuting this man. We've seen it. He's mentioned his afflictions and his distress quite a few times. And he will again in this uh, in the what we're going to look at tonight. Now, he gives the antidote to the things he hates. He says, I love your law. Very simple statement, but it's a wonderful statement here. The psalmist loves the word of God. Now, we're getting that as we go through this psalm. How many times now has he just come out with that declaration? Last week, he said, oh, how I love your law. Now he just says, I love your law. What he basically means is the way that he's contrasting this is he is not divided. He does not have a double mind when it comes to loving the word of God. That's what the contrast is trying to emphasize for us. Whereas those unbelievers are double-minded, he is not double-minded. He is very confident and sure when it comes to the word of God. He goes on, he describes, you are my hiding place and my shield. I wait or I hope in your word. He describes God as his hiding place and his shield. Again, constant themes that we see throughout the book of Psalms and the whole Old Testament. And it tells us something. His hope, his trust in the word of God was based on his relationship with the Lord. The two things go hand to hand. We have to understand this. It's not mere academic knowledge. I could show you many New Testament scholars, as they call them, many professors who know the Bible inside out. They know the Greek, they know the Hebrew, they know the manuscripts, but they do not know the Lord. We find that in most universities across the country today. Now, I I love academic knowledge. I'd never discourage anyone from seeking a deeper pursuit of academic knowledge of the Bible. I think it's absolutely necessary for the Christian faith. But my caveat for that is make sure that it is an outgrowth of your relationship with the Lord. 
That's the only way round it can go to be profitable for you. Anything else for me is just like a clanging symbol, to be frank. It has to be an outgrowth of your relationship with the Lord. And if you're walking with the Lord and he leads you into that sort of a discipline, good, do it. We need people like that in the church. He doesn't need it in the church, but the Lord can use anyone and everything at any level for any ministry that he chooses. But it has to be an outgrowth of your relationship with the Lord. That is the caveat you need to know there. He says, 115, depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. And this is an interesting point here. How many of you, you've, ever, you've heard the expression probably used of someone that you used to know who maybe was a Christian or came to youth group at some point, and then someone will say, well, they fell in with the wrong crowd. You've heard that expression? You might have been the wrong crowd yourself at some point for people in the life. We all know what that means. Now, there is a truth to that. The truth about we do need to be careful who we spend time with. Now, this is not talking about what we get up to in our work and our jobs in one sense. This is talking about those who we have intimate relationships, those who we share common interests with, those who we want to be with. The point is that this should be the body of Christ primarily. And we mustn't underestimate the influence that people have on us. It's huge and it's very, very powerful. And pressure comes from society, from cultures, from institutions. And don't underestimate it. Don't think that because we're Christians, we are immune to those pressures. They can really sneak up on you. And before you know it, you've compromised in some area and you might not even realize it. There is a truth to this. Two people cannot walk the same path if their destinations are completely different. At some point in life, you'll cross over, you'll bump into each other, you'll realize that you're both going in very different directions. You may have had this at some point. You might have even had this in the church, unfortunately. But you're talking, you think, you, you think you've just met someone who you're really gelling with and you're going over all things that you have an interest. And then you start talking about some real serious issues and all of a sudden you both come, both realize you're on completely different pages and perspectives. And it's a real stopper in some instances for relationship. Now, we have to be mature and be able to work through these things. But the psalmist here is talking to something much deeper than that. He's actually talking about people who are actively pursuing evil. And in this psalm, you'll notice that he's always addressing God in the psalm. Pretty much throughout the psalm, he's addressing the Lord. Here, he turns and he addresses the actual evildoers. And he speaks to them and he says, depart from me. And I find it interesting why he says that. And we get that in the second half of the verse. That I may observe the commandments of my God. He says, depart in order that I may follow the word of God. And the negative of this is that the company that he was keeping or the people who were trying to surround him were hindering him from following the word of God. Now, how many of you have been in a situation like that? Sometimes these situations that we put ourselves in or we find ourselves in through no fault of our own are hard to follow the word of God in without having to compromise, without having to do whatever it may be. These are real situations that we get in in the life. The psalmist here gives us this attitude. He's very clear cut. Depart from me. You're hindering my, my obedience to the word of God. Now, we might see someone like that and we might look at that and be like, oh, that's a bit self-righteous. Don't make that mistake. Don't let anything get in the way that is hindering your walk to obeying the word of God. Basically, the psalmist here is saying to these evildoers, you're going to go your way. I'm going to go my way. My way is for obedience to the Lord. Yours is not. Therefore, you need to choose a different companion. And that's the same, I believe, that the Lord would want us saying to these things too. He goes on in the psalm. He says, sustain me. He prays that the Lord would be his strength against these adversaries. So this tells you again that this was obviously a trying situation. Don't underestimate the power of peer pressure. The Lord, he prayed to the Lord, you need to sustain me and give me strength in this situation. And then he says, pray that I would not be ashamed of my hope, verse 116 that is, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Now you hear that word, for me it reminds me of Romans 1, uh, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. Now how do we not be ashamed? The first thing I would say, we obviously have to be born again. You have to have the living God inside you that makes you love the gospel, that makes you love Jesus, that what he's done. You have to have a true saving faith or else you will probably be ashamed at some point, particularly when the culture shouts at you that your message is from a wrong era or whatever it may be. We must not be pressured into thinking that our hope is something that people don't need to know, something we shouldn't talk about. People often call it weird, but I actually don't mind that. 
it is weird. It's very unusual to the world. That's one of the whole points about it. It is something very, very different to what the world offers. However, having said all that, that's not actually what this verse, I believe, is getting at. It's not just simply saying, help me, Lord, not to be embarrassed when I want to talk about things that can be a little embarrassing in the culture because no one else believes them. The word in Hebrew for hope there is a much deeper word, and it, it really implies an expectancy that what he is hoping in will be validated and proven true by a demonstration of evidence, reality, or fulfilled prophecy, as it's often in the biblical sense. So it has a much deeper sense there, the hope that it will be proven so that you can show that it is worth, it has worth. That's the message that he's preaching. That's what this word is getting at. So he's saying, don't let me devalue that hope, that value that my message has in the eyes of the world. And then he ends by emphasizing that although he loves the word of God, he knows the wicked will ultimately perish. He says, my flesh trembles for fear of you, on verse 120, and I am afraid of your judgment. My flesh trembles for fear of you. Now, the word tremble there, that, it's trying to get across, you know, when you're, you get goosebumps and your hairs stand up on end. You've ever been in an experience like that, usually a massive adrenaline or you'll get very scared or something like that. That's what he's saying here, and that is his response when he contemplates the wrath of God. And this is a man who's, this is a believer here, someone who we've read this whole psalm. He's so dedicated to following the word of God. But still, when he contemplates the wrath of God, it gives him that fear and his hairs stand on end because the wrath of God is an awesome thing. And we find this in the New Testament too. It says in Hebrews, doesn't it, that the God is a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we should actually, I believe, sometimes contemplate the wrath of God, what it means for an unsaved world, what it means for us, because by doing that, it'll actually give you a deeper appreciation for what the Lord Jesus has done for us. So the, the, when we contemplate the wrath of God, which it is good to do sometimes because it, it just goes against everything in our being, we don't like to do it, and then we understand when it says that the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ, we understand a little bit just what was actually transpiring on the cross all those years ago. It's very glib and easy to say Christ died for our sins, Christ suffered the wrath of God, but think about what that's actually saying right now. The full weight of the wrath of God poured out upon Jesus Christ for us. The psalmist thinks of it and it makes his hair stand on end. It gives him shivers of fear. This is still the same God that we are dealing with. He's awesome and he's mighty and sin will not go unpunished. But having done that, he sent his son to die for us. That is the magnitude of the love of God. And that is how we hold these two things in tension. So as Christians, we must not downplay the wrath of God because in doing that, we actually downplay what happened on the cross. In fact, we speak of the law, we speak of judgment quite frequently. Jesus did a lot throughout his ministry because by doing so, it emphasizes just what happened and just how amazing the cross is that he would do that for people like us. This is why he can say that God is his shield, that God is his hiding place. It all comes from his relationship with the Lord. Let's read the next section, the iron letter there, verse 121, and let's just read the whole section again. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness. Teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is the time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. The key theme in this stanza we could highlight as servanthood. Three times he mentions the fact that he is God's servant. He calls himself the servant. And this is really what he's looking at here. And this is a theme that you'll see in the New Testament. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Almost every epistle starts by an acknowledgement that we are all God's servants. And we'll find it all throughout the New Testament. It is a massive theme. And in this stanza alone, we get some very good principles that we can seek to emulate of what it means to be a servant of God. Firstly, we are to act with justice and righteousness. Secondly, that we are to be completely and utterly dependent upon the Lord. He is our surety, is what it says there in verse uh, 122. 
We are to long for the Lord's work and we are to long for his word. We are to be taught by the Lord and we are to love the Lord's word and we are to hate everything that is false, that is against the Lord's word. Basically, that's what that is saying. These are things that every servant of God should seek to produce in their own lives. I believe this will be a fruit of the Spirit if you're walking in the Spirit in your own lives. But as we've seen many times already through this psalm, it doesn't just happen passively. You have to be diligently seeking these things. That's why we're always, it's always pictured as a walk. Because when you walk, you take action as you move your steps one to another. When we did verse 105 and we looked at that famous verse, the light Word of God is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. And we looked at how the Word of God illuminates our path, but we still have to be walking, you understand. And this is one of the things that we do uh, when we come here, when we're at church, all the time in our Christian life, if we're following the Lord, we are always walking after him. Verse 126, it is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. And again, this is one of these statements, I believe, that the psalmist, is, as he's contemplating those things that make his hair stand on end, give him goosebumps, the Lord will judge those who disregard the word of God, the ones who willingly violate God's law. There will be a day of judgment. The Bible says there is appointed a day. These things will not go unpunished. Again, it, it is a serious thing. Well, this, just this week, I saw, just, this had me thinking about this, the British Board of Film classification. Did, you, did anyone see this week? They revised their, their universal bracket for film classifications to disregard blasphemy. So using Jesus Christ in a, in a blasphemous context. Um, now, of course, we hear that all the time on TV and movies, but as of now, a U rating didn't generally have God's name in vain and blasphemy in Jesus Christ. That's now been scrubbed. They're not even, it's not even a thing anymore. And the reason... Now, should we be surprised? Maybe not. But the reason given was what made my heart grieve the most. They said that their research, and their research is surveying parents, indicated that the parents just don't care about that. And I can see people answering that in our culture. You know, should we be surprised that that was the response they got? And why, if no one else cares, why should they care? That's the attitude that they, they really had. But it was almost like a Survey by default, there were not enough people standing up that we should do it. Interestingly, I'd imagine they would not do this with various other religious names and figures because they would get pushback from that. But they had no pushback from this. Now, I find that just grieves me. As I think of this verse in the psalm here, he speaks about those who break his law. There will be a day of reckoning for things like this. But, you know, how hard is it? Are we able to even stop people in the church using the name of God in vain? That's a question that we all need to ask ourselves like this. I know that's an ongoing issue. You go, you go onto many websites, you listen to many things, you'll find these issues going on. This is one of those things. And I raise this because obviously blasphemy is one of the, it's repeated again and again in the Old Testament. You don't take the Lord's name in vain. So we find this a lot now. And in our country, this has just had universal reckoning now for people of any age. And I'd say that's an issue for prayer for the church. He says, in light of those who void God's word, and the psalmist again, he ends by simply just declaring his love for the Lord and his word. Verse 127, he says, therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. He loves the word of God more than gold, but not just more than gold. He says, above fine gold. There's a distinction there. You get different purities of gold. He's saying it's not just gold. This is gold that has been so purified and refined that there's absolutely nothing in it. It's the most valuable type of gold that you could get. And he's saying, I love your word even more than the most valuable precious metal that we could get in this world. A gold that has been removed of all impurities. And we should expend our efforts to get the things that are most valuable to us. And then again, it's one of those points. The psalmist, I think, wants us to self-examine ourselves at many points through this psalm as he interweaves God's judgment with his love for the word of God in this section. Sometimes we know that the things we pursue in our lives are probably not the things that are best for us. We will do it at different times. But the psalmist here pursues the word of God. And as I was thinking about this verse, the word uh, being more valuable than gold, I've shared with you before, but a few years ago I was doing some work for the Museum of the Bible in the States, and they... They came over to London and they took me to a private collection 
of some private Bible collector, that guy who had loads of manuscripts, and he let me hold one of the few privately owned Wycliffe manuscripts. So this is a handwritten manuscript from John Wycliffe's era in the 14th century. He just had one page of it. He let me hold it, and some of the first, he let me hold a, a first edition Tyndale Bible. Now, it was a real nerd fest. For me, this was like a kid in a candy store. But as I was standing there, and I, I've got photos of it, again, there it's a real nerd fest. But as I was holding this thing, and we, we call it a Wycliffe Bible, we call it a Tyndale Bible, named after the people who, who translated it. And I was thinking, the, these things that I was holding right there, they changed the world. Quite literally, they, they transformed most of the world. They, they were the first translations that gave the Bible to in, put it into English for the common tongue of most of the world. So the, the effect of these things cannot really be, let alone the fact that they were absolutely almost considered priceless uh, in this day and age, but it was because of the men who bear the name of the translations, they considered the word of God to be so valuable that they had to dedicate their lives to make sure that everyone could read it. And they did, actually, quite literally, some of them, give their lives for that, for that cause. And they, they understood this verse, I believe, that the, this attitude that the psalmist had, it is more valuable than gold. And we see that reaped in their lives. And I want to tell you a story. I know if you've been in the church a long time, you've heard this story before. But I want to share it again because it, it is one of my favorite stories. It's a story of Mary Jones and her Bible. I've told this before. I know I have. But if you haven't heard this story, this is one that always just amazes me. Mary Jones was a young Welsh girl. We're talking about the year 1800 in a Welsh countryside here. She was very, very poor. She lived in just a stone cottage in the countryside. She lost her father when she was four, and she did menial chores with her mother to eke by uh, a meagre existence. Every Sunday, Mary would walk two miles to the local chapel, where she would sit enthralled as the preacher would read from this big, large, leather-bound book that he had on the pulpit. And in these days, it was very rare. You didn't, you didn't have really personal Bibles really much unless you were quite wealthy. The church, if you had a parish church, you were lucky if they had a Bible. After the service, Mary would go up to the pulpit. She'd always remember just standing, gazing at it, trying to look at the page. She couldn't read at this point uh, in her life. Obviously, everyone was illiterate at this stage. She remembers wishing that she could read. And she prayed to the Lord that somehow she'd be able to read. And then a few weeks later at church, one Sunday, it was announced that a circulating school would be coming to the village, this Welsh village. Now, a circulating school was early education. It was completely Christian-based and Christian-funded um, by private, private landowners. This is pretty much how Welsh became a literate nation. It's actually how most people in England became literate, was through the work of Sunday schools and Christian circulating schools. But this would be her chance to learn how to read the Bible. She would rush through all of her chores. She'd go to the schoolmaster's house about two miles and she would learn to read. Any spare time she got, she would trek over to the farmhouse to have a look at this Bible that they would bring. At age 10, I mean, this is all before she was 10, you think, think for contrast. At age 10, she was determined to get a copy of the Bible for herself. She set about doing every extra job she could imagine for people around the village for six years she saved with that one motivation and that one desire, I must have a Bible. Now, that just challenges me, that, when you think this is a young girl of this age. For six years she saved until she finally had enough money, and she heard that a man in a village 25 miles away was selling Bibles. So at 16 she took her money, a tiny bit of food that she could gather, and she set off on a 50-mile round trip through the Welsh countryside. And if you, know, you think the English weather is bad, imagine what this was like before any of the creature comforts we have. This was a dangerous thing, particularly a young girl traveling on her own, but she did it. Eventually, she made it to the village of Bar Bala, it was called, and she found, asked around, she found the house of the minister called Thomas Charles, he who had been selling Bibles. He was a traveling Bible salesman. However, when he knocked on the door, and she, told, she told him his story. He was heartbroken because he'd sold all of the Bibles at this point. However, he was so impressed with her faith and determination, he said, why don't you stay for two days? I'm hoping to get some new Bibles soon. So he found her lodging. And in the end, when he did get his new Bible deliveries, he gave her three Bibles for the price of one, which was also all the money that she had. So the next morning, clutching her treasured possessions, she started the long 25-mile journey home. And she arrived home to this village. And the description of when she arrived home that you'll find in the historical records is amazing. 
this was obviously this was an amazing thing for someone to do this. The whole town knew about it. When she when they saw her coming home, every everyone came out of their house and they started clapping her in as she walked to the city with these Bibles. Now that in itself is an amazing story, and that I believe even in a young person shows you someone who had that same desire as the psalmist. The word of God is more valuable than gold. But what I love about this story even more than that, well not even more, equally is that this man, Thomas Charles, this Bible salesman, he was so impacted by the faith of this young girl that he could not rest until he found a way of ensuring that all the common people, all the Mary Joneses of this world, had access to cheap Bibles. And he went, he used her inspiration, and he went on to start what we now call the British and Foreign Bible Society. It's just called the Bible Society today. It's an organization that is worldwide that has now distributed hundreds upon hundreds or millions of Bibles to people all over the globe. They're still very active today and they are still doing that today, distributing Bibles. All of that motivation from one person who loved and valued the word of God more than gold and considered it something to dedicate their life to. And that is what God looks for. You see, above anything else, that is the heart that I believe God is looking for here. You can actually still go to the Bible Society. If you go to Cambridge University at their library there, I forget which one it is, where the, United, the Bible Society have their archives, you can go and see. They still have one of Mary Jones's Bibles with her writing in the front of it. Uh, that's for another geek tour another time. But that would be an amazing thing. Let's read the next section, uh, 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me. After your manner with those who love your name, establish my footsteps in your word, and do not let iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Now this is a wonderful little verse that we have here, this whole section here. He declares the word of God to be wonderful. And wonderful, is, I love that word because it, is, it has such breadth and depth of meaning to it. The idea is that the word of God the revelations of his will to us, not only are they wonderful in that sense, but they are also designed to fill the mind of the reader with wonder. The word has a dual connotation there. Wonder is a fascinating component of life. People acknowledge that it is necessary in life to have a sense of wonder. If you just Google loss of wonder, you'll find pages of journal articles, psychological articles of people trying to figure out ways to get people to recapture the sense of wonder that they had maybe when they were young. It's caused depression and all these different things. But here we have the ultimate motivator for true wonder, and it is the word of God. You see, the psalmist says the mind is to be in awe of the word of God, We're to be in awe of its wisdom, the scope of its vision. It takes us from creation to eternity. It encompasses life and death, heaven, hell, glory and majesty. It reveals to us who we are, humanity. It reveals to us the animal kingdom. It reveals to us angels and deity. We are to be in wonder at its truth. We are to be in awe at its benevolence. It is perfectly adapted to order this world, to produce flourishing for its inhabitants, to promote happiness, and ultimately to direct us to the eternal kingdom of our Lord. And primarily, it points us to the wonderful counselor himself, Jesus. The Bible is the story of God who became man to bring man back to God. There is never a better story ever told than this. And I say story, and I, I'm not, I say that in a factual sense, a reality, a story that is actually the true story of reality. There's nothing quite like it. The wonder and majesty, the sheer delight the psalmist is trying to describe is produced in him by the word of God. And this is why it says, look at the next verse, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore, because of how wonderful they are, because of what they produce in us, my soul is moved to observe them. Really, he can do nothing else when he has a correct understanding of the word of God. Why would you not observe it? If you're not looking to observe it, then you haven't quite understood what he's talking about. Because the word of God is simply wonderful. 
And I think, again, is that not something that we should try and emulate in our own lives? Is that not a desire we should be praying for in our own private prayer time if we don't feel like we have that, that the Lord would give us that desire? And I believe he will give you that desire if you pray for it specifically. It's not something we, we generally think about specifically, but we should pray that we would love his word more, that he should reveal his wonder through his word to us. This is the next verse, 130. The unfolding of your word gives light it gives understanding to the simple. This is, follows on, really, from that section. The unfolding. The idea here is, is, if you can imagine it, the word means the opening or the door. So if you think about the scriptures, there's this wonderful, amazing story of reality that we have, and the scriptures just open that door, and in an ancient house, generally, if you didn't have windows, the door was the only sense where you'd get light in. And it harks back to what we were talking about, 100, verse 105, as a, the word of God being a light. It gives understanding. As you open the word of God, it gives light. It gives us understanding. It calls us simple here, and I believe that's not an insult. It's talking about people who, who need to learn, and we are, compared to God, we are simple in that respect. It gives us a glimpse into eternity, into the heavenly perspective on all things of life. It reminds me very much of the words in the, we find in the gospel, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Or I am the light of the world, whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You'll notice this continual connection between God, his word, and light throughout the whole Bible, in fact. Verse 131, I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Again, just, I, I just love the expression that he has here. He opened, I opened my mouth wide and panted. Now, when we think of something opening their mouth wide and panting, most of us in this culture probably think of a dog that's been on a really long walk and they're really thirsty and they're just absolutely in desperate need of a drink. Or if you know yourself, if you've been on a run, if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> but you know when you get to the end of a run and your, your mouth is open because your body needs more oxygen than you can get, just through normal breathing that's the idea here what he's basically saying is the image that we're being given is that he is so desperate he know he needs the word of god that he's literally panting for the word of god he's longing for the commandments of god and he's comparing these two things it implies an actual desperation for the teaching of the lord and this is again something that we need to be praying for. If you want to know how to pray for the church in this country, if you want to know what the response is to no one raising their voice when the BBFC put blasphemy as not even as something that's bothered about anymore, it is the church that needs to be raising their voice in those situations. The church is not going to raise their voice, I believe, unless we have this attitude about the word of God. Because ultimately, breaking a commandment is breaking the word of God. If we don't esteem, treasure, desire, know the wonder of the word of God, why would we raise our voice when the culture does something against the word of God? You won't. Now, we're all part of the church. There's not one blame on any part of the church. But I'm just saying, if we want to actually do something, one of the things that I find hard is that we often feel helpless when we see these big cultural movements going against us. But our main recourse is to pray. That is really primarily what we've been called to do. Everything else will be an outflow of that. We should pray that the church would be mouth open wide, panting, longing for the commandments of God. And not only that, when they're like that, that they would see the wonder of the word of God and their heart would be filled and you would delight in it. As we've seen this psalmist declare throughout this psalm. Verse 133, again, following on from these two thoughts. Establish my footsteps in your word, and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. This seems to be a very similar concept to uh, the word of God being a light for our path. He's saying, establish my footsteps in your word. What he basically means here is order my conduct and my life by your word, according to the requirements put on me by your holy law. Let me be wholly obedient to you. And then he says, and do not let any form or type of sin hinder this. And we all know that. If you get sin, whatever it may be, when it gets dominion over you, or if you entangle yourself in it, we will all go through periods like that probably at some point. It's harder to walk in the way of the, that the word is calling you to. It just, it just is. So this is an issue that the psalmist takes it seriously, and he's crying out to the Lord that the Lord would not let that happen. Again, such a good practical example for us in our own lives. This, whoever wrote this psalm, whether it would be David or there's a bit of debate about that, but this man gives us so much wisdom in this psalm here. 
He says, order my life to follow your word. Remove anything from me that would hinder that. That's what he's basically saying. And he ends by saying, make your face shine upon your servant. Teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Now, for me, make your, make your face shine upon your servant. That sounds very familiar, that verse. It sounds like the ironic blessing, doesn't it? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, lift up his countenance on you. So I believe that's what he's got in the back of his mind here. But when you understand what the ironic blessing is, it's really a prayer for that intimate face-to-face relationship with God. And this is, again, what he's asking for here. His understanding, his obedience to the word of God is not just obedience for the sake of obedience. It's not what we would class as legalism. If you get involved in that, you're going to rob yourself of joy. It has to be an outworking of your relationship. And that's why at the same time as praying that the Lord would teach him, praying that he would be able to obey, he also prays that I want to see your face, Lord. I want to have that intimacy with you. All of these things go together, go hand in hand, and I believe this is what we need to be praying for in our own lives as we're feeling like we're a little far from the Lord. Once again, he asks for instruction in the word of God. So he asks that the face of the Lord would shine upon his servant. He asks for intimacy with the Lord, and from that intimacy will be a desire that the Lord would teach him the word of God. That is the key there. And finally, he then expresses the same emotional distress by looking out in the world and seeing people breaking his law. Because if you love the word of God, you love his law, when people break the law, that will grieve you. And it's okay that, you know, that will grieve you. you. Just spend an hour on Twitter and you'll probably come away with that sort of a feeling as you see these things outplaying in our world. It does grieve us. But again, we need to pray. Let's do our last section for tonight. We'll do the 137 down to 144 and then we'll save the rest for next time. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. For you have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Notice how many times he says that throughout this psalm. Your commandments are my delight. Then verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. So we see here what he's really explaining in this standard is the righteous character of God's word. Again, he often speaks about the righteousness of God in the same sentences as saying something about the word of God. The two are really inseparable. He constantly highlights God's attribute of righteousness and applies it to the word of God. Almost without a second thought, he just switches between the two statements, and it's a wonderful way that he thinks about that. He says that the Lord's righteousness, he calls it everlasting righteousness. The word of God, should we be surprised by that? The scriptures reflect the author. Yes, this is again one of the teachings that the word of God is inspired. It's God-breathed. It reflects the righteous God who we worship. I want to just focus in on a couple of verses in this stanza for you. He says, your word is very pure. Your word is pure. The word is speaking of what they call the smelting process of refining gold. You know, where they heat it up, and like we talked about a little bit earlier. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You see, so you have that, again, that understanding the word of God is absolutely pure. It has absolutely no impurities in it. It is the most valuable thing that we have. It reflects the will and revelation of a God who is himself ultimate purity. And this is why it is, can, can be considered holy. And that is why it says, therefore, he loves it. And again, we should do the same. But the word pure here, the concept is, again, it has a dual meaning here. Yes, the word of God is itself pure with no impurities, But the word can also be used in the context, and you find it a few times in the Old Testament, in the context of trying or testing human beings. And I like this because it gives us another way of looking at this. His word, the purest thing possible, purifies us because we are the ones who are impure in that sense, aren't we? This is why it says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth that he may be sanctified, washing them with the water of the word. Constantly throughout the New Testament, we see this principle of us being purified, sanctified, and washed by the pure 
word of God. So you have both of these elements coming into play here. Verse 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. And I want to just camp down on the concept of truth for a little bit with you here. It's such a vital element of life. It's very hard to define. Well, I mean, literature would assume it's very hard to define. I like to keep it simple. I, I hold to what we call the correspondence theory of truth. But basically, it's just the straightforward meaning that truth is what corresponds to reality. It is an accurate description of reality. And we all use the correspondence theory pretty much all day, every day in our, in our everyday lives, all the time. I won't seek to get philosophical and give you examples. However, truth in a broad sense is, we could say, it's really under attack today. Um, we have these words like post-truth. We have these words like postmodernism, And all these different ideologies that seek to really undermine truth. Now, I want to push a little deeper because I want you to understand this so you can see what we are witnessing in the world today. Because many people are really confused about what is happening in the world. How could it get like this? Why are all these different things seemingly just going crazy and haywire all over the place? A lot of it comes back to simple, basic principles. You see, truth provides us a unifying framework. Stay with me. This is the last few minutes. This is important we get this a unifying framework to reality. This is very important for the Christian worldview because we hold that our worldview is the true story of reality. Yes, you understand that. So therefore, the truth that we have, everything that the psalmist has just been talking about, when he says the law, your word is truth, that is where the true story of reality comes from. It's very important for the worldview. Jesus is described as truth. His word is described as truth. And from the word of God, we can get certain fundamental principles about the world. And not just about religious things, about the world as we see it, about creation, about how we operate, about government, about sin, about redemption, about the identity of humanity, about what we call natural laws, about what we call human rights. All of these things derive from truth and a biblical worldview. Now, historically... These sorts of things have provided an overarching story of reality that in many periods of Western history anyway, or what we're talking about here for our context, most people have agreed upon. And they help form societies into cohesive wholes. Yes, they allow for differences because the individual rights are respected. We call this human rights or natural law, as a lot of people call it, because people are made in the image of God and these sorts of things. They, they all come from this. Now, the problem today is that this concept of an overarching story of reality is rejected flat out by these new worldviews that pop up. Now, these different ideologies, they've come, and what they do is they reject the overall biblical worldview that has truth at its foundation, and they offer their own smaller little truths, if we could say with a little t, that is unique to their perspective of the world. And the problem with this is, is that these different perspectives cannot coexist with each other. So you get what we call tribalism happening. They don't have any larger unifying principles, but what you get is small groups offering their own perspectives of reality. You cannot speak for someone else, they have to speak into you. And that's how it goes. Now, you may have heard the term critical theory. It's very popular, particularly in the States, because there's legal battles going on about should it, should not be in schools, on and on. And that's all in the context of race. Critical theory is much bigger than race. It's been, been with us since the 1920s. What critical theory does... Now, again, don't worry about the terminology. I want you to look at the world and see what is happening here. So understand, small groups, private truths, rejection of a big overarching truth. Critical theory seeks, by its very principles, to divide people into these small groups. It uses many different means. At the moment, it's race. Sometimes it's gender. When it was in the 30s and 40s, it was economic class. It was wealth status, whether you're a landowner or you're a factory worker, all these sorts of things. It can be geography. Sometimes in the Middle East, we have critical theory in the issue with Palestinian theology. That's, that's where I study in most of this. It can be geography. All these things can be used by critical theory to create an identity around a small group. And usually, like I say, these small groups do not coexist very well because they have completely differing truths. There's no unifying principles. And one of the things about the group 
is that the group takes precedent over the individual. Notice that. So you can sacrifice an individual for the good of the group. That is fundamentally opposed to what we had in the whole concept of individual rights based on the Judeo-Christian principles. So it's a complete rejection of that. And it, we call it collectivism. And if you want to use the crass term, Marxism. I don't like that term today because people have abused it and it's got all these different political baggages attached to it. Collectivism is a much better term. But that's the idea. I want you to understand the ideas. It seeks to bring division. That is its entire purpose, to divide a unified people in order to make them weak. That was why critical theory was first started, in order to actually turn a people who are unified to be fighting amongst themselves. They are then weak and ready for takeover, really, to set one group against another. That is the whole purpose of these theories. That is the whole purpose of, we call it identity politics today. Again, I don't like that term, but I want you to understand the ideas. Creating small groups that cannot cohere with each other, that have their own perspectives of truth, and at the same time reject a big reality. That is what we are seeing play out in the world right now. It does not allow for this overarching narrative. And that is a problem for Christians, because that is exactly what the Christian worldview seeks to give the world, a story of reality that people can stand on and unifies people. And it, when it is applied properly, that's what we have seen over the years. It elevates human society, elevates human dignity, and these sorts of things. But that is not the case at the moment. Now, the fact that we don't really understand what has been happening, or many people don't, shows us how well critical theory has been infiltrated since the 1920s when it was first started into all of our media establishments and institutions. Now, the problem with this is the way it's being played out at the moment on the Anglo-American scene, it's again become so political that as soon as one side promotes something, the other side will immediately reject it on principle, regardless of the ideas or whether they're good or bad ideas. On principle, if it comes from a different group, it must be rejected because it's a threat to your group. You understand? We see this playing out in our world today. And then it goes further than that. In fact, you must not only reject the other group's idea, you must show that they are immoral for promoting such an idea. And then you have to go further than that. If they are being immoral, then you must actually have a moral right yourself to stop that group from promoting that truth. And usually that ends up being by whatever means necessary. That is the outworking of collectivism as it goes like this. This is what has led to cancel culture. Now, I can understand why this happens in a culture that has fully rejected the truths of the Christian worldview. They have no unifying principles, no middle ground. They're seeking, scrambling around for their identity. The problem is that this is also in the church too. Now, why this gets confusing and why this is in the church? Let me give you an example. Christians look at some of these groups, and let's say one of the causes that they are promoting, and the cause might actually be quite a good cause. You know, there's always going to be some things, and they may say, that's a good thing. We should be doing that. I can find a Bible verse that says we should be involved in these sorts of things. That must be what I'm doing, and they want to jump on that bandwagon with that cause, but in doing so, they accept the whole theory that comes along with that cause, that at its root has already rejected the Christian worldview. It may have a moral principle that they are fighting for that matches up with something in Christianity, but underneath that moral principle, it has already rejected everything that Christianity stands for. And that is what the church is not getting. And we need to be, that's why I mean, we will not get that unless I believe we are really delighting in the word of God, searching these things out. Remember we said the light directs our path, but it also it directs our feet, but it also shows us the path ahead of us. We interpret the world through the word of God. And that is what we see here. That's why it's so important when the psalmist said, your word is truth. Now, I think, where is this going to go? The further we go down with these sorts of ideologies and theories, the more division we will see in the world. There's absolutely no way that won't happen. That is what it was designed to do. When we see division, we will see anger. On, in the populace, we will see frustration, which then leads to violence. And then, and notice, this is an important concept. When you have violence, and you see certain groups who are acting like this from that, the point of the violence is not just wanton destruction. For some people, I'm sure it is. The point of the violence serves a bigger purpose within the theory. Because what happens then is that there is a call on the establishment to stop the violence. New laws are created 
to stop the violence, and those laws will inevitably come at the expense of your freedoms. You see how that happens. That's why nothing here is just random people going on mobs. The mob might be used, like it always has been, by the people, but these are the things that are going on here behind us. When you lose the freedoms, that will ultimately lead you to totalitarianism. And again, that's a big word. It basically just, well, let me explain to you what that means. Why does it lead to this view totalitarianism? If I could simplify that for you, it means basically one of these groups with their small truths will win the day and their truth will become the only acceptable view of truth and no other view will stand against it because they will have the means to stop it. And it, this is, sounds, you might think I'm being utopian, I'm not. We've seen this play out in history many times before, but this is what is happening in our world today. We are already well down this path. What is the antidote to this? Quite simply, we need to stop dabbling with these ideologies, and we really need to remember that we have the truth. We really do have the truth, personified in Jesus Christ and in his word, as the psalmist says for us here the word of God. We need to make our last stand on the word of God. No one else is going to do that for us. We see this with the BBFC classification. It is the church's duty to stand for the word of God. This is why I believe we need to get into the Bible in a new and serious way in the church, again, in the Western world. This is one of the reasons why we take the Bible so seriously, why we put such an emphasis on biblical study. We need to take the lessons of this psalm to heart. I would say that the church is the last line of defense, the last bastion of truth. We are the ones holding forth the word of life for these people who are being deceived and confused by the enemy, by all these different things. That is our role on this earth. We may be coming to a time in history when that will be costly for us. But here's the issue. I don't think we'll sacrifice for it unless we love it like the psalmist loves it here. And I, I have to say that honestly. It's challenging to my own life to your own comforts that we have in this part of the world, but I don't think we will, we will be willing to stand and sacrifice unless we have the love that this psalmist had for the word of God, unless we know that it is pure, it is righteous, it's good, it's holy, that it is truth. Unless, like this psalmist, we are delighting in it, our mouths are open, our tongues are out, we're panting for it, we're looking, we're asking the Lord to teach us to learn from the word of God, we take joy in it. It is the delight of our heart. We value it above gold, yes, above even fine gold. We need to be a people of the book and we need to seek the power of the spirit as we do that. Let's pray. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.